Friend, how do you respond to receiving gifts? Uh, my Daisy is at the age where she is learning how to respond to receiving gifts. And uh, I told you that over the, the Christmas holiday, her grandparents had sent so many gifts. Normally we open up gifts at different places, but all the gifts converged on our home. Uh, so we had a number of gifts to open up. And, uh, you know, so of course, you know, the grandparents had spent the time to, to buy the gift and to uh, pick out something that Daisy would like. So, uh, of course, they wanted to FaceTime and Zoom and to, to see what uh, her reaction and her response. And so we have to teach Daisy, you know, say thank you and respond in this way to teach her how to respond to receiving these gifts. And, of course, the grandparents, they want to see that. They want to feel appreciated. They want to, they want to be thanked as well. And I would say, in general, the greater the gifts that we receive, usually the greater response that's expected. And today, as we conclude our sermon series, All I Want for Christmas is Jesus. If you've been with us over the series the last two weeks, I've talked about uh, the, gr- the greatness of the gift that we've received in Jesus. Two weeks ago, we talked about how God was giving us his greatest gift ever. God gave us the gift of a Savior the greatest person to ever live, the promised Messiah, an eternal king with an eternal kingdom who grants eternal life. And God gave us the greatest miracle ever performed, a virgin giving birth, God becoming man. And last week, if you were with us, we talked about the gifts that Jesus brought into the world. And John, whoa, he taught us all about how Jesus brought us life and light in his very presence. So, I'm assuming this morning that we've meditated upon this wonderful gift and we're ready to learn how ought we to respond to such a great gift. And just as Daisy needs to be taught how to respond to gifts, so we too need to be taught and maybe at least reminded because often we can remain unmoved or ungrateful or perhaps we grow cold or indifferent to the most wonderful and costly gift ever given. So today my sermon is entitled, Learning to Worship with the Magi. We're going to learn to worship with the Magi today. And uh, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. We'll be looking at that story. And we will learn four ways that we can worship with the Magi. Now, before I get to those points, I want to set some context. Who were these mysterious Magi? Sometimes they are called the wise men. Uh, in tradition, they became referred to as kings, uh, though that idea developed later. Uh, they were not technically kings. They were advisors to the royal court in whatever country they came from. Just as Israel had prophets and priests who advised the king, Gentile nations had the Magi. And they were a priestly group that studied astronomy, astrology, dream interpretation, magic, wisdom literature, and sacred texts. And they watched the heavens to discern any divine messages that might be in the night sky. So the Magi, they were priestly political advisors who gave divine guidance to the king. And so they might tell the king, here is what the gods expect or here are what the gods are doing. And we see something like this in the book of Daniel. Uh, If you remember, when he correctly interprets King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he is appointed to be the leader of all the king's wise men. In Babylon. So that is the idea here. Now, how many magi? Now, we aren't sure exactly how many magi came to see Jesus. The Eastern tradition of the church says 12. The Western tradition has always said three in accordance with the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
Um, but the Bible does not specifically say. It's also very likely that they had servants and attendants and guards traveling with them, so we should imagine in our mind as we think about this story, we should imagine an entourage traveling to Jerusalem, at least a decent size. Where did they come from? Perhaps from Arabia, Parthia, or Persia. Babylon is also a possibility, and to me this is perhaps the most likely, as the Magi seem to understand the promise of a king of the Jews, and they understand the idea of a prophecy being fulfilled. You see, in Babylon, they would have encountered the large Jewish community who lived there. Because remember, after the exile, after Ezra and everybody brought in Zerubbabel and Nehemiah brought everybody back, there was a considerable amount of people who stayed. And so there was a large Jewish colony in Babylon. And so Gentiles in Babylon would have learned about the Jewish scriptures and the prophecies. And they could have learned about the Jewish teachers. I also, and this is just my personal uh, opinion here, but it seems totally like God for the priestly leaders of the country that exiled them, uh, for them to come down and now bow down to Christ. That just seems like totally like God. But it is speculation. <laughs> it's a great story, but it is speculation. There were other Jewish colonies in Arabia and Parthia as well, and we just don't know exactly where they come from. Why did they come? In verse 2, they report that we saw his star when it arose, and we have come to worship him. So the Magi see, see some kind of sign in the sky, and they discern that a king of the Jews had been born. And several hypotheses have been thrown out as to what this was. Uh, some have said maybe it was Halley Comet, but most think that would be too early. Uh, perhaps it was a supernova of some kind. Uh, but perhaps the most likely suggestion is something that just happened recently in our own lifetime. Um, on December 21st of this year, there appeared what many were calling the Christmas star. Did anybody happen to look out of the night sky around December 21st or 22nd? Okay, just a few of you. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? Remember you hearing this in the news? Yes. Uh, on December 21st of this year, Jupiter and Saturn had a great conjunction. And they were the closest they had been in 400 or perhaps 800 years. And we actually know that from astronomy in 7 BC, around the time that many actually date the birth of Jesus, uh, we know that this conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter happened three times. And Jupiter was known to represent either deity or royalty, and Saturn could often represent the Jews. So a magi, somebody who studies the night sky and the stars, they look up, they see Jupiter, royalty, Saturn, the Jews, a king of the Jews had been born. That's what they would tell us. But it also seems that maybe they needed more information than just that because somehow they had expected this or were expecting this. Because in verse 2 they say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? They had seemed to have some type of prior knowledge of what's going on. Um, so they expected this. And in fact, it's strange, but at this time there was a general expectation in the whole world, the known world, that a great king was going to be born in Judea. In fact, even the Roman secular historians were writing about this, that there was a rumor going around that a great king was supposed to be born in Judea. And not only that, the Magi, as I said before, they were likely familiar with Jewish prophecy, including a prophecy out of the book of Numbers that the rabbis were saying was messianic. Look what it says in Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I perceive him, but not near. A star will come from Jacob. 
and a scepter will arise from Israel. So it seems the Magi see this amazing conjunction in the sky and they conclude that God is now fulfilling these ancient prophecies to raise up a new king in Israel. And friends, I tell you all of this so that we can just be in wonder at the amazing story that we are in and the amazing story that God is writing. It is something miraculous. And once the Magi, they recognize the truth that God has sent the Messiah, their response of worship to this amazing gift is incredible. And so we can certainly learn from the Magi how to worship, how to respond to this gift. So what do the Magi Magi do? Well, first of all, number one, they seek Jesus. They seek Jesus. After the Magi see the star, they set uh, out upon a long journey. If it was from Babylon, that would be 900 miles, a journey that took Ezra and their caravan about four months, uh, though perhaps the Magi could travel quicker with with a smaller group. But traveling was always dangerous and always very costly. Where do you stay? Do you have enough supplies? Will you encounter bandits upon the road? Will you find water? The Magi, in spite of all the dangers, they are willing to take this journey because they want to seek this king of the Jews. They want to seek Jesus, the foretold king. And they do all of this on faith. They don't even know who Jesus is. They haven't even seen him. They don't even know exactly where he's going to be, except in Israel somewhere. Uh, So where are they going to find him? They are walking by faith, not by sight. The Magi remind me of Abraham, who God called out of Babylon as well, with a promise of descendants, blessing, and land. And, And he left everything he knew to follow God's call and promise. An act of faith, without seeing any of the results. As the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews eleven six, without faith it is, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The Magi believe that Jesus exists, that he is the Messiah, and so they earnestly seek him. Now this seeking in the Greek, this means to exert consider, considerable effort and care in learning something to make a careful search. That's what the Magi did. They sought after Jesus carefully and earnestly. And I want to ask you a question, friends. What are you seeking right now? What are you seeking in your life, in your heart? Are you searching for meaning, for inner peace, for financial stability, for worldly gain or status? You see, worship It starts with the desire, the intention, and the action of seeking Jesus. In the Magi, they had one destination in mind, one destination alone. We need to find the king. We need to find the king. And not just any destination is going to get them there. He's not going to be found in Arabia or Persia or Babylon or Rome, not even in Jerusalem when they finally get there. Come to find out, he will be in Bethlehem. And in the same way, friends, we have to give up all other destinations, all other destinations that we are seeking and seek Jesus alone. We give up the other destinations that we could aim for, the other ways that we try to find peace and meaning in this life. There's only one destination that matters. It's seeking Jesus. As the bumper sticker says, wise men still seek him. They still seek him. 
And when the Magi found out that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, they start seeking him there. They move their destination towards the king. And then something amazing happens. In verse 9, it says the star moves. God supernaturally guides the star that they saw to lead them to the exact location of Jesus. And that's an amazing thing. I have to conclude, it's almost as if God wanted the Magi to find Jesus. And of course, he did. God wants us to seek after him. But friends, God also wants you to find him. That is one of the most amazing spiritual principles in the whole Bible. God wants us to seek him. We have to seek the destination, but God wants us to find him. And as it said in Hebrews, he rewards those who earnestly seek him. As, the, as God said in the, in the, uh, through the prophet Jeremiah, he said, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. What an amazing promise. When we seek after Jesus, when we make him our destination, God promises that we will find him and that we will be rewarded for such a journey. So the Magi do, what do they do? They seek Jesus. The second thing they do is they rejoice in Jesus. They rejoice in him. In verse 10 it says, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now, I think sometimes our English translations, they can be a little bland. You know, you get the point, the the meaning doesn't change, but you don't always get the full flavor. And in the Greek, there is a piling on of words here, and and it's, it's literally, they rejoiced with an exceedingly great joy. They are pumped. They are thrilled. They are ecstatic. You know, they are just so excited, we can't hardly capture it. You know, one of the things I love about Christmas is seeing the joy of kids opening presents, as I've mentioned before. You see on their faces, what? What? I can't believe it. I'm so excited. You see, this is a natural reaction when what we are seeking for is found. So it has to start with the seeking. And when we seek and we find, we will rejoice. When we worship, when we seek Jesus alone, he is faithful to be near. One of my favorite promises in all of Scripture is James 4.8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. What an amazing promise. You want to be closer to God? Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. So like the wise men, we will seek Him, and then we will rejoice when we have His nearness, when we have His presence, when we have Christ Himself. So that's part of our worship. To rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice is a choice. A choice to delight in the goodness of God and His presence and His character. So in worship, meditate on the magnitude of the gift that we've received so that we can rejoice in who God is and all He's done for us. So the Magi, they rejoice. The third thing that the Magi do is they revere Jesus. They revere Him. In verse 11, It says, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down. Literally, they fell down. They threw themselves to the ground. This is a sign of devotion before maybe a high-ranking person or a deity. So they are, what they're doing here is they are paying homage to Jesus as king, the king of the Jews. And what humility these wise men show. Uh, The biblical scholar R.T. France, he says, this prostration was a familiar act of homage in Eastern society, a recognition 
of social superiority. I mean, in a status-driven society, this is huge. You see, the Magi, these are probably the most learned men in the world. They were royal advisors, wealthy, powerful. And what do they do? They bow down. They fall down in front of the child Jesus. He had nothing royal about him. He was a child in a poor home with poor parents. And he was not in Jerusalem, but he was found in the humble Bethlehem. Yet, they fall down and they revere him as king. You know, I think sometimes we can get mixed up when there's two truths that seem to compete with with each other, but they really don't. Um, And I think if we take the last point together with this one, I think we can conclude that rejoicing is not irreverent. It is not irreverent to be exceedingly joyful in worship, to dance as David danced before the Lord. But rejoicing also does not mean that we, should, that we shouldn't be reverent. Worship is both rejoicing and revering. It is celebrating and honoring. It is praising and submitting. It is singing and surrender. So our attitude to Christ should be both Rejoice, rejoicing in joy, but reverent in submission to Christ as Lord and King. As Hebrews 12, 28 through 29 puts it, Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be sh- shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. There's a reverence. There's a bowing down. There's a submitting to Christ as God and King. So the Magi, they revere Jesus. And finally, number four, they give Jesus costly gifts. They give him costly gifts. Now we get to what is probably the most well-known part of the story. Verse 11, then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And Angela did such a wonderful job of of teaching us about the different meanings that for uh, almost 2,000 years that these meanings have been given to these different uh, gifts, the gold for royalty, frankincense for divinity, and myrrh for death and burial. Uh, But there's more of a generic point that Matthew is making in this passage. Uh, These are gifts that are fit for a king. These are gifts that are fit for a king. They are given because of the high value which is meant to honor a person of high status, namely a king. And so this story it ought to remind us in the, in the biblical story of a visit that another king had from foreign dignitaries, King Solomon, when the queen of Sheba visited him. Look what happens in verse Kings 1 through 10, or 1 verse 10. The queen of Sheba, she gave the king 120 talents of gold, large quantities of spices and precious stones. Never again were so many spices brought in as those the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. In both cases here, costly luxury gifts are given to honor a king. And I love how intentional the Magi are. It says they open their treasure chest. This was a, they had a box of some kind that, that kept their treasures for safekeeping. And they open it up. Now, I think the Magi had maybe other options here. You know, I mean, they, they could have said, look, we, we traveled so far to come here. We've, we've bowed down. We've, we've worshiped Jesus. We can now just go home. 
God would, God would be pleased. We showed up to worship. We, sh- we showed up to give him praise. We traveled here. This was a big deal. But no, they don't stop there. They open the treasures. Rather than keeping it hidden, rather than keeping the wallet in the pocket, rather than keeping it closed, rather than storing it up for a rainy day, rather than storing it for the rest of their travel back home, no, they open their treasures. It is now vulnerable and available to the king. And they don't just leave the box there with Mary. They don't just kind of set it out. No, they, they present it, it says. They present it. And I, and I think one of, one of the most accurate pictures, actually, of the story, when you see the story depicted, you often see the Magi bowing down. And I likely think this is almost exactly probably how it happened. I don't know if the camera can follow me here, but when you picture the Magi, you should picture this. Holding out the offering to the king. That is what the Magi did. They bowed down and they presented the offering to the king. They give Jesus a costly, worshipful offering. But you might be asking, why in the world would a tiny child need gold, frankincense, or myrrh? Well, soon evil King Herod is going to wipe out or try to wipe out any contenders for his throne. So Mary and Joseph are going to need to flee. And biblical scholar Michael Wilkins, he says, more than the Magi know or intend, these gifts are likely used to providentially support the family in their flight to and stay in Egypt. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? God used their costly gift for a purpose. And in the same way, God, God, still, God still has no need of our gifts He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can do all things. But in His grace, He allows our offerings to have a purpose even beyond worship. Though, friends, let me remind you, worship is enough of a purpose. Worship is enough of a purpose to give costly gifts. That would be enough. But our offerings are always, at the same time, an act of worship and an act of mission. They are an offering of worship that serve God's purposes in the world. Now, we may not be as wealthy as the Magi, but we can all make offerings that are costly to us personally, which I know many of you do, and many of you have done, especially as we've done this building campaign for the glory of God. So I simply say to you, well done, keep it up, for our King is worthy, and His mission goes on. So the Magi... They are an amazing example of worship to us, perhaps far more than they ever intended to be. And in light of the awesome gift of Jesus we have received, how ought we to respond? So I'm reminding you this morning, we seek Jesus. We rejoice in Jesus. We revere Jesus, and we give him costly gifts. And I want to ask you this morning, which one of those do you need most in your life right now? Which one of those do you want to focus on in this new year? Is God maybe inviting you this morning to seek after Jesus more? Is God inviting you to rejoice or to revere? Or is God calling you to give him costly gifts that honor him and further his mission? I simply say, may the Holy Spirit guide your response this morning. Now before I close, I do want to invite the worship team to come up because we are going to offer our King our worship. And as they come up, let me conclude this sermon with a quote 
from N.T. Wright that I think is just, it's so wonderful how it ties this story together. Wright says, There is another way as well in which this story points ahead to the climax of the gospel. Jesus will finally come face to face with the representative of the world's greatest king, Pilate, Caesar's subordinate. Pilate will have rather different gifts to give him, though he too is warned by a dream not to do anything to him. His soldiers are the first Gentiles since the Magi to call Jesus king of the Jews. But they crown the gift they give him is, is made of thorns, and his throne is a cross. At that moment, instead of a bright star, there will be an unearthly darkness, out of which we shall hear a single Gentile voice say, Yes, he really was God's son. Listen to the whole story, Matthew is saying. Think about what it meant for Jesus to be the true king of the Jews. And then come to him by whatever route you can and with the best gifts that you can find.